0: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrowcom slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Keir Starmer has been told that the next election might be decided by one key category of voter, someone called Stephen's Woman. But is he even close to winning her over? Now is the time for us all to be part of something bigger and to say with one voice, why not Britain? Although Rishi Sunak's party is in the doldrums, he seems to have found his voice. But is anyone, particularly in Stevenage, actually listening? We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists and stop the boats. Those are the people's priorities. They are your government's priorities. And there's a much bigger question. Is dividing the public into stereotypes, like oldie mums and working to man, ever a good idea? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week the UK for The Guardian. The 2019 general election somewhat redrew the political map. The Conservatives, as we all know, won an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons, as seats in the so-called Red Wall that had been held by Labour for generations turned blue, often for the very first time. In our episode next week, we'll be speaking to the academic Professor Tim Bale about all of that, and his new book, The Conservatives After Brexit. But this week, we thought we'd have a close look at the Labour Party. As Keir Starmer marks three years as Labour leader, has it really been that long? With a double-digit polling lead and a confidence that some would say was almost unimaginable this time two years ago, how close really are Labour to forming a government? And who are the voters they need to either win over or win back? In a moment, I'll be speaking to The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and Mark Steers, Director of the UCL Policy Lab and the former speechwriter for Ed Miliband. But first, Josh Simons is the Director of the think tank Labour Together. Hello, Josh. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Now, your organisation has been very visible lately because it's been pushing the idea that Labour needs to think very hard about a category of voter called Stevenage Woman. We will talk about Stevenage Woman, bless her, in a minute, First question, just tell us as a sort of thumbnail sketch, who or what is Labour Together?
2: Labour Together is a uh, campaigning think tank dedicated to helping Labour win. Um, We were set up in uh, the Jeremy Corbyn era by a group of MPs who shared a view that um, the next leader of the Labour Party needed to be someone who could go on to win the country and um, were committed to
1: um, rebuilding and reforming the Labour Party to achieve that. Were you, a, were you a kind of uh, like Charles de Gaulle in the Second World War at that point, like something of a sort of government in exile kind of thing? Uh,
2: in <laughs> retrospect, it looks that way. I don't think that was uh, quite understood at the time. I mean, you know, the, the, the shared understanding was that a new party wasn't going to work. You know, first past the post means that you've got to stick with the progressive party we have and that um, reforming the Labour Party so it was a, an election-winning, you know, target voter-focused machine was the only way to achieve that. And that, um, you know, it was really important to have a home for thinking and ideas and political strategy that uh, could do that in an era when, you know, most
1: politicians were surviving. Okay. Tell me about Stevenage Woman. Who is she, the the demographic she represents, and and why perhaps she has fallen out somewhat recently of Labour's thinking as you see it? So
2: I think it's worth saying where she comes from. By where where she comes from, though, I don't just mean Stevenage itself. I also mean how you get these characters, because I think sometimes they appear a little bit like they're just sort of, you know, some people sit in a room and they pick a place and then they pick a person and then they write a description of them. And then, you know, suddenly that's what Labour should be focusing on. They really come from quite a rigorous process. You know, you do a big survey of lots of voters about their values and attitudes to a massive range of issues. And then you use an algorithm, basically, to group people according to the sets of similarities that they have. And if you do that, you you basically get six groups of voters in England and Wales. And two of those voters matter in the seats that Labour need to flip to win the next election. Pause a minute. Can you tell me all six? Activist left is the first. That's the only segment that in 2019 we won. Centrist liberals is the second. Right. Patriotic left. That's the dominant group in the Red Wall seats. Okay. The disengaged suburbans, which is Stevenage Woman, the one that we focused on. English traditionalists. And then the last one is the rural right. And basically conservative base is those last two, English traditionalists and the rural right. Labour's base is smaller. It's the activist left. And whoever wins four segments wins the next election.
1: Okay. Now disillusioned suburbans, as you call them, or Stevenage Woman as the shorthand, that's been a category which has always been important to the Labour Party. So in, this, in that sense, sort of pushing this, the importance of Stevenage Woman, is a kind of back to the future thing. Because I've always been mindful, watching politics, of how central Newtowns, and I know this isn't solely about Newtowns, but how central they've been. I mean, Milton Keynes was always in contention. Basildon back in the day was in contention. Stevenage always was. Telford, right? There's something about Newtowns which tells you a lot, right? So this, in that sense, is nothing new. That's right that's absolutely right and we're not claiming that this is an undiscovered you know hitherto
2: unseen voter that we have somehow dug out the uh, bowels of our data set um it should be a reminder of a familiar kind of bellwether seat and a familiar kind of voter who dominates in that bellwether seat that's that's exactly right the one thing that i would just underline about this group that is i think a bit different is that it's both You know, your 41-year-old mum of two struggling to pay the bills, fair-minded, working hard, who's white and lives in Stevenage. But it's also a very similar demographic kind of person with similar values and attitudes who is not white, disproportionately like to be South Asian. You know, say a Kashmiri mum of two who's 41 and has similar values in Bolton West. So the interesting thing about this group that I think is surprising to some people is actually... In most of the top 43, I think it is, Red Wall seats that we looked at, this is a bigger group even than the patriotic left. Right. So winning back the Red Wall also requires this sort of voter, but it's a different kind of voter than the one that we think of as a Red Wall voter.
1: But your argument, is it not, is that a little too much emphasis is placed on the patriotic left, which is to say... uh, people who uh, very feel a great affinity with Labour's traditions and heavy industry and all that and, and live in so-called red wall places that a bit too much attention is being paid to them. They seem to have come back, as, as you see it, in sufficient numbers. And the biggest problem is disillusioned suburbans who are, are being a little bit overlooked.
2: I would say that that is not actually our argument. No, our argument is, <laughs> our argument is we need both. You know, our goal here, right, right, is not just to get Labour in a, you know, minority government or backing coalition or whatever. Our goal is to win a comfortable working majority that puts Keir Starmer in number ten.
1: That's the goal. What I say still stands in the sense that and I'm probably guilty of this myself, a certain sort of political commentator or politician does fixate on the red wall, perhaps to the exclusion of the kind of voters you're talking about.
2: Yeah, I mean, in a sense, I think that might be true of the um, kind of political conversation we've been having. And that's because, you know, this patriotic left group were a surprising group for the Tories to target in 17 and particularly 19. That's why they dominated our conversation and they succeeded in doing that. Now, the fact that we are now in a position two years into this cycle where, flip and neck you know, we're 15, 20 points ahead in the polls, the Tories have completely imploded with all the six segments that we identified, but particularly this patriotic left group, it's natural that then we should start to think, OK, so what are the other types of voters that we need to win back to actually get a secure majority and get us back in power? So I think it's partly a function of where we're at as a party and as a moment in the cycle.
1: Are there tensions? between strongly appealing to the so-called Red Wall and uh, patriotic left, as you call them, and Stevenage Woman simultaneously?
2: So the big difference is that patriotic lefts are generally strident on what they think about the economy and on what they think about social and cultural issues. So taking social and cultural issues, they're quite self-consciously anti-woke, think critical correctness has gone too far, think people should be allowed to say whatever they think and feel, and they currently can't always do that. Whereas the um, Stevenage woman voter is much more of a balancer, you know, likes a politician who makes an effort to sort of pay attention to both sides, you know, is, is socially conservative, but not in an anti-woke, political correctness has gone too far kind of way. Um, so that means... How are they, so- how are they socially conservative then? If not? They want fewer yeah. migrants. They think Britain has too many migrants, for example. Um, but, you know, almost everybody in the country thinks that. So they, they are mildly socially conservative in that sense, but they don't think that there's a sort of problem with our culture. They also think that migrants contribute to the economy. They also think that migrants are good for British culture. And interestingly, you know, we think that's related to the fact that there's the highest number of non-white people in this group than any other group. You know, they're not just white women from the South. Right. They're also right. your mum in Bolton West. What really matters is that when we seek to win back voters who are both socially conservative, what we don't have to do is pretend to be people that we're not when we do that and be kind of aggressive and dogmatic and bullish about it. You know, we don't have to do that to win these two groups of voters back. The harder conversation, in a way, is on the economy because the patriotic left voters think corporations rip this country off, workers aren't paid fairly, we should nationalise a lot of stuff, support pretty much every working group that's out on strike right now. Whereas the Stevenage woman voter is much more cautious about the economy, much in some ways less opinionated. They very often answer don't know on questions about the economy um, and really see economic policy through the lens of food shortages on shelves, extraordinary childcare costs, you know, work that isn't really paying the bills properly. And so what Labour have to do is they have to make a big, bold offer on the economy, you know, a program of investment in British infrastructure and industries. But they have to articulate that program in a way that speaks to her experience of perpetual, constant insecurity in almost everything that she does.
1: So much of this is about messaging and stories, as we will discuss in a moment. Thanks so much for joining us, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We are now joined by The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff and Mark Steers, Director of the UCL Policy Lab and a former speechwriter. To Ed Miliband, let's talk um, about some of the things that, That Josh mentioned there and what what they mean. Clearly, the Labour Party needs to identify who they need to target before the next election. That's one thing. But there's also a big difference between understanding who someone is and understanding how to actually win their vote, not least when uh, you're still trying to convince some people that you're not your predecessor. And when part of your recent success has been down unquestionably to errors made by Tories who aren't even in office anymore. That's Labour's essential challenge, I guess. But let's talk, first of all, about these sort of sociological concepts. We've been hearing about these for years and years. I thought it was worth just seeing if any of these rang bells. I've got a list of these kind of uh, political stroke sociological categories. Essex man? Oh, yeah. Sort of 80s, 90s. Now, I, that wasn't a political, one. I think that started in the culture, in articles in the Face magazine and things like that. But politicians were mindful of it quite soon. Group of working-class Tory voters who left the inner-city London slums, made new lives for themselves.
3: I grew up in Essex. So I'm very familiar with Essex oh, Man. Oh, you know him I've too you, I've spent most Abby. of my life with Essex Man. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was the first But As you say, that wasn't, that wasn't something the Tories deliberately targeted almost. It we didn't quite fit with the other categories because it wasn't like someone said, okay, let's go after Essex Man. It's almost like they followed the Thatcher phenomenon rather yes, her yes. singing them out.
1: Now, the, the, the Jack and Jill of the new Labour period, Mondeo Man and Worcester Woman. Worcester woman might be stepish woman, actually to all intents and
3: purposes is that right I think they are certainly I mean I remember being sent out to Worcester to look for Worcester women they are they are very very. <laughs> did you find
1: her did you find her?
3: mostly found people going what go away um, but <laughs> they're very similar I mean i wherever they said to come from you know, and I think there's this more sort of racial diversity and more sort of sophistication in the targeting this time
1: right and but, um, but, uh, but with quite with very shallow political loyalties Mondeo man was shorthand for that was sort of Tony Blair's people. There was a lot of New Labour talk about we have to attract these fellas who were out on a Sunday morning cleaning their car, feeling very proud of it, sort of right of centre somewhat or a lot in their inclinations. A Mondeo man, to my mind, is a sort of defining stereotype of the New Labour period. That's right, Mark, isn't it?
4: Yeah, exactly. But also it's interesting that Mondeo man doesn't have a place So, you know, this was a kind of new labour was all about, you know, you kind of freed yourself of the shackles of belonging and community and that you were out on the on the roads driving your Mondeo. And as you say, you know, shining it up on the weekend. And it didn't matter whether you were from the north or the south or from England or from Scotland. You know, you were new. Uh, This was a young country. Tony Blair was building. uh, And that that sort of sense of.
1: Yeah, freewheeling freedom. He seems eerie, like Alan Partridge in retrospect, but let's not go there. Um, there's, there's one on my list which I had no idea about. Pebble Dash People. Does anyone either of you oh, remember yeah. Pebble Dash people?
3: It was a short-lived William Hague thing, and it was an <laughs> attempt to basically, if Worcester woman and Mondeo man got married <laughs> and lived in a sort of semi somewhere in the Midlands that had Pebble Dash on the outside, they would be the Pebble Dash people. And from the beginning, it was—I just—I was at the briefing where they announced it, and literally people were laughing. <laughs> It just, it was a very short-lived phenomenon because it just sounded like, it sounded like a choice going, good God, some people live in houses with sort of grit stuck to the outside of them. Oh my God. You know, it was just, it it was not
4: great. And alliteration is never good in these things, let's be honest. No, that's true. Your pebble dash people thats never going to
1: work. Although uh, pebble dashing still is a political signifier. Keir Starmer talks about growing up in a pebble dashed house as if the the pebble dashedness, if there is such a word of that, is a signifier for something. Here's one from your time uh, when you were working for Ed Miliband, um, Mark, which I remember vividly. Do you remember oldie mums? Now, Caroline Flint, who was um, quite high-ranking in in Labour at the time, was very big on this. These were women. Again, this might be um, Stephenish Woman by any other name again. She, you know, she's everywhere. But um, the idea with Aldi Mob, I remember Caroline Flint saying this, was she did most of her shopping in Sainsbury's, but went to Aldi for Prosecco, as if this was a great, <laughs> as if this told you everything you needed to know. Do you remember that? You must remember
4: Aldi, Mom. Yeah, yeah. People are obsessed by supermarkets always, though. I remember, <laughs> you know, we, we were sat in a meeting with Ed, you know, sort of 2013, 2014, and someone pitched doing a speech called Morrison's Matters. Yes. You know, before that, there's always been Waitrose stuff. Supermarkets have a particular hold on politicians. And I think one of, one of the reasons is that they're always prepping those how much does a pint of milk cost uh, questions because they're sort of terrified of being out of touch
1: with uh, ordinary people who do a a, a weekly shop, as Keir always calls it. Because in the Gordon Brown period, I can recall, there were broadly said to be two kinds of voters, certainly in England, which was Waitrose voters on one hand and Morrison's voters on the other. And I remember speaking at a meeting alongside James Pennell for quite a while. He was very high-ranking in the BBC after he stopped being a politician. But someone in the audience very angrily asked a question about Iraq and James Pennell said, you're one of those Waitrose voters, to which this <laughs> this person responded, don't you fucking patronise me. Thus proving that although politicians know a lot about these categories, it's not a good idea to confront people with them, and particularly the fact they seem to fit certain categories. But that's what happened there. Um, Gabby, you were going to say, was this about Aldi and Morrison's? And- no,
3: I think, I mean, in Caroline Prince's defence, when you say <laughs> someone who buys Prosecco Aldi, I know exactly who ah,
1: you Ah, go on then. Who is
3: it? I can think of several friends who fall into that category. I know exactly what you mean. You mean someone who is probably of a certain age you might be in your 40s you want a treat at the end of the week you've had a rubbish week with the kids you're exhausted at work everything's driving you nuts you need just a little lift on a friday and champagne is to expect is not something you would have except at a you know wedding or christmas and you want prosecco and actually the aldi aldi does do a nice prosecco is it, hold
1: on a minute hold and, on a minute you're talking about yourself here are you aldi mum is that you I'm a
3: freaking elderly mum of course I am but anyway Waitrose Woman Waitrose Woman is you know recently is Rishi Sunak's target voter you know the sort of um, socially liberal Tory woman who kind of you know um, doesn't really like the the nasty sounding Tory stuff um, but doesn't want to pay any more taxes you know that's that's very much yes, yes, talking yes. about the same people every time because the election comes down every time to a bunch of weather main seats in which these people say I mean it's odd that there's only one day a man. There's about 57 different categories for, for women, yes, which is quite that tells striking. you a lot,
1: sure. Mark, when you were um, working as a speechwriter, the speechwriter for Ed Miliband, you were also involved in, in big questions of strategy, right? So this stuff must have come up all the time. It always suggests to me a certain sort of awkward distance from real life. If you're if you're conceiving of people in these categories, as instructive as some of them might be, it does sound a bit like you're at quite a remove, really, from what's actually going on. I mean,
4: I remember right at the start of Ed's leadership, you know, 2010, 2011, um, there was a lot of talk in... You know, his office and in you know, speeches that he would write himself at that point, you know, about could you break free of focus group politics yeah, or, you, yeah. know, you know, the dominance of sophology or what had seemed to be a kind of problem for lots of people in the new Labour years, which is that you just followed, you know, followed the fashions as dictated by you know clever, clever opinion pollsters. And there was a desire, I think, in those early Ed years to sort of, if not abandon that completely, then sort of free yourself from some of the shackles of it. And to think about you know bigger questions, as Ed would always say, like you know the structural phenomenon that we're actually shaping people's lives, uh, the nature of capitalism, climate change, you know some of which would come up in opinion polls and focus groups, and some wouldn't. It's kind of no surprise to me that it, it you know it keeps on coming, um, but it does come b- back you know fundamentally to that that sense of electoral anxiety, which is. Yeah, you know, how are we going to get over the line? Um, and that's when you start inventing these categories and thinking them through and trying to adapt your policy
1: offers and your speeches and your messaging accordingly. The so-called Stevenage Woman category is about a sort of a much newer Britain than the old post-industrial kind of Britain. Um, which has much shallower political loyalties and doesn't really feel the weight of history to anything like the same extent, you know. If you go to Milton Keynes, as I have done many times, and you ask people about politics, Brexit is a good example, they'd voted Leave or Remain, but they weren't massively wound up about it. You know, they, they were told to make a choice and they did. Whereas when you went to red wall places, people really saw that in the context of years of history and their relationship with particular politicians and what had gone right and wrong with the country, over decades, if not centuries. And that's why it's very interesting to write about those places. But new towns and what they represent, you could say this, I suppose, of sort of new housing developments that aren't new towns in themselves, that are smaller, which are on the sort of periphery of most sizable English settlements now. A very interesting category of voter lives there now. And I understand why it's really, really hard for politicians to appeal to those people because they don't really know them because they're unlike politicians. They're not massively political. That's the challenge, isn't it?
3: Those people aren't massively political in the online, in the very online Twitter argument way that we think about being political, I suppose. But I think the one thing that brings them together is probably is economics. And that's what makes this election probably an easier job for Labour to to balance not just those two but of course the other kind of Labour voter which is your woke urban young Labour voter who's horrified by all of this stuff what unites all of them is concern about cost of living and economic you know your basic state of the economy the basic state of how hard it feels to get by in ordinary life and people who are not necessarily following every twist and turn of whatever the latest political argument is sure as hell are following that.
1: You make it. But hold on, you make it sound easy, Gabby. A little there. Eh? Nothing Which in is politics
3: not. is easy. But you asked how you balance those three, and what you do is look at the things that the thing that unites them.
1: Mark, you were nodding.
4: In yeah, no. Look, I, I think that's fundamentally right. That this is the best bit of Josh's research, but also Keir Starmer's sort of rhetorical offering at the moment. Now they do feel things don't work like they used to. Uh, and that they, that is a problem. They can't get a GP appointment. They send their driving license off to get renewed, and it doesn't come back. Uh, you know, the school uh, you know has to fundraise for basics that it didn't used to have to fundraise for. Their job feels more insecure. They haven't had a, a wage rise for a long period of time. You know, shopping costs more money than it used to, and it just keeps keeps seem to get going up and up. Politicians aren't really up to sorting the things out, uh, and it feels pretty depressing. Um, and you know, what Labour have got to do if they want to have an electoral coalition is convince enough of those people that there are meaningful changes uh, and that they are the people who are going to introduce them.
1: I would argue, and it's, it's sort of borne out, I think, by the polling, that in the so-called red wall among voters that we know, a term by people like Josh patriotic left, it's easier for Labour in the sense that that you can make a sort of come-home argument. There is an underlying affinity, as much as it went horribly wrong, between those voters and the Labour Party that you can draw on, right? When I met people who were voting Conservative for the first time in Stoke-on-Trent in 2019, they pulled lots of faces and said, oh, my granddad would turn in his grave if he knew I was doing this, right? There was a sort of residual loyalty to the Labour Party, which I think is probably, in most cases, still there, right? But in the case of Stevenage Woman, and the so-called disillusioned suburbanites, that isn't there. And that makes them much more challenging. That's fair to say, isn't it? You don't think so. You're pulling the face going. No,
3: because I think, I mean, if Stevenage Woman, maybe she's 40, it's a bit different. But if Stevenage Woman is 50, she probably voted for Blair in 97 and 2001. and You know, she's she's coming home as well to that extent. When we're talking about Stevenage Women, we're talking about a certain kind of person that lives in a place Labour wants to win. But those places that Labour wants to win are changing too, and that's changing the picture. I mean, if you look at places like Milton Keynes, for example, or if you look at places like Reading, Swindon, Worthing, Canterbury, you know, kind of thorough and Thanet. These are places where over the last five years, there's been a big demographic shift. A lot of people moving out of London and bringing with them younger, more liberal, more metropolitan values into what were small towns. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's a a big part, an overlooked part, still, in my opinion, of difficulties for the Conservative Party. But anyway, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll talk about the character and appeal of Keir Starmer and how he compares with Rishi Sunak.
0: Finding your perfect home was hard.
1: Welcome back. We're going to talk a bit about Keir Starmer and his leadership of the Labour Party. One of the biggest issues that he's criticised for, I suppose, is his personality. His persona is probably a more accurate way of putting it or lack thereof. Um, It's pretty clear that his pitch as a sort of strong, stable and competent leader worked pretty well when it was used against the chaos of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. But it might be a bit harder for him to successfully do that when he's opposing Rishi Sunak, it's pretty clear that Sunak has established himself as someone who wants to get things done, whether he is doing is another question, (laughs) and certainly is less chaotic, it's not that difficult, um, than Liz Truss or Boris Johnson. But recently, Sunak's really been going for that. I mean, it's felt in the last couple of weeks like he's been doing a big announcement a day, bouncing around full of energy, wanting to be seen as the person who gets things done. And I think people see that. Tony Blair was visibly insurgent, with the caveat that the 90s were very different times and all of that, he was a tremendously energetic politician. Starmer isn't that sort of politician, right? He, that's just, he's not going to do that. I saw him described in The Observer on Sunday as lugubrious, which was a word I had to look up. Sounds like a sort of Italian wine. You get from um, Aldi. But I, I looked it up and apparently lig- <laughs> lugubrious <laughs> means looking or sounding sad and dismal, which is maybe a little bit harsh. But I'm sure you can see what I mean. He's just a different sort of politician. And therefore, it doesn't feel like he's sort of in the national conversation to anything like the same extent. Whether he could be is another matter entirely.
4: I mean, look, the first thing I'd say about Keir Starmer is you know, he isn't a politician, or, or at least wasn't until very recently. And that, that, I think, really ought to shape the way that we think about what he does in the role. But also... It, it, It presumably will shape the way that he tries to present himself to the public. He is uh, a lawyer. Uh, He he was director of public prosecutions. He came to politics late in life. Um, He has both the strengths and the weaknesses that come from that very different backstory. You know, he hasn't been brought up on Pebble Dash People or Essex Man or Mondeo Man. You know, I guess as a speechwriter, what I would always look for is for, it sounds like a cliche and it it is, but nonetheless, it's true. Like authenticity and reality and being able to tell a story about who you are in ways which are true to yourself. But he's got to draw on the the true story of himself. Um, That's partly about his background. You know, as a as a kid growing up in uh, not exactly Stevenage, but not far away, but also, you know, the professional life that he's led and, and trying to package him as something else it isn't going to be good for him and it won't be good for the
1: country either. Gabby, competence and sort of being sensible. I mean, that's sort of how low the bar <laughs> went in recent years. You shouldn't overlook those things. They, they count for a lot, but notwithstanding what Mark said, I do still feel like there's a, a sort of energy that's lacking that somehow... Some button could be at least slightly turned up that might make him a more sort of vivid figure.
3: There's something about energy or what you want to call it, umph or pizzazz or just, you know, a bit of showbiz that Blair was very good at and that Starmer isn't. But I think it's more, for me, it's more that <sighs> Starmer doesn't access his emotions easily. No, you know, that's true. he litigates issues rather than kind of embodying them or, or you don't get a sense of what he feels about things, even when he tries to even when he talks about quite emotional things that for which, you know, he obviously genuinely has deep feelings about, like, you know, his mother's illness or, you know, he's kind of child or things is quite he comes across as quite closed off, quite private. And yes. in in um interviews you don't get the sense that he ever says anything he wasn't planning to. You know, you're slightly, you know, scraping at a brick wall trying to get at something that that won't come out. And and whether or not, you know, Blair's emotions were always you <laughs> <laughs> They not want to be a little stagey, but you yes. they want to be a little performative, but you you got a sense. That's, I think, what voters are saying. When they say we don't know what clear Star for stands for, I don't think they mean there's not enough policy that we know what it is, because actually Labour can point to a range of quite substantive policies now. Is that they don't have a feeling of him. It's like talking to someone at a party and feeling that they're holding something back.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I want him to talk more, and this isn't about a personal backstory or any of that, but in a more moral vocabulary. Which, again, Tony Blair was pretty good at. And that and that's not about policy at this stage of the political game. It's about characterising the national condition. And I've heard Keir Starmer do it once, and he did it really well, actually, which is at some stage that I forget of the Sue Gray proceedings. Um, they were presented to the House, and Boris, John, uh, Boris Johnson spoke, and then Keir Starmer got up, and he talked about the idea that because there'd been parties in, in Downing Street, people were beginning to question their obedience of lockdown and maybe felt guilty about the fact they hadn't been with their loved one when they died, which of itself is a very emotional thing to bring up. And he said, and they shouldn't feel guilty. And he t- he talked really about how morally upstanding people had been in lockdown and what a great thing that was and how the Tories had sort of tainted and sullied it. And it was really effective, but I've only heard him do that about anything once. Yeah, it's such a good example, John. And, and look, it, it is about,
4: again, tapping into the the particular set of moral values that I think that Keir Starmer has, which are around, you know, dignity, uh, treating people well, um, you know, a sort of fairness, but not in a sort of calculated economic sense, but just, you know, like there are right ways of doing things and approaching the world. And, and you know, I, I felt similarly touched, I think, when I listened to his um, Labour Party conference speech last uh, year, Um, The first section of which was about growing up in suburban uh, life. And he told the story about his phone being cut off. Um, But he's also talked really, I think, incredibly evocatively about a basic sense that he had when he was growing up in the 70s, that however terrible things got, they would probably get better for him. Uh, and that that was what he wanted to share with the rest of the country, that it wasn't going to make grandiose offers. This wasn't going to be utopia. This wasn't going to be New Britain. This wasn't going to be a young country. This was simply going to be a space, again, where when you're going through tough times, you think the government's got your back, that things are heading in roughly the right direction, and even though it's difficult, um, you know, you can have some kind of what he called in that speech ordinary hope.
1: Gabby, Patrick Maguire, who's a journalist in The Times, wrote a piece this week pointing out just how many slogans Starmer has got through over the past few years. Another future is possible, January 2020, under new management, a new leadership, secure, protect, rebuild, a new chapter for Britain, security, prosperity, respect, three abstract nouns, on your side, a fairer, greener future, which I think was the last Labour conference, as I recall, take back control, which he nicked from Dominic Cummings while he was napping. I think we're now on to build a better Britain. Um... That work needs to do in here doesn't it that we need to know what broadly speaking the sort of story is it's not just about a cold abstract slogan this is about your political story and and he's not there yet
3: i mean slogans are sort of meaningless in some ways um and yet in others if you can't say in three words what you're about then do you know what you're about really is the problem and if you you know if you had to sum up Starmer's sort of offer in three words, it would be just better than this. That would be it, wouldn't it? It would be, we're not this bad. You want a bit of things can only get better. You know, that wasn't wasn't a detailed commitment from Tony Blair. It wasn't even the official slogan in 1997, but it's the words people remember because you remember that sense of feeling... You know, the country had sort of hit rock bottom and a new government was going to come in with loads of energy and solve all the problems that, you know, this government had just run into a wall. That's what you want the sense from here. Okay.
1: I mean, better than in the the way that take back control and make America great again were stories. I've always felt this very strongly. I mean, they're only three or four words, right? But they're stories because they refer... Implicitly to a past, and they hold out the promise of a better future. I don't know whether it's better than this story. A, a no, that's not my suggestion story. for a
3: good slogan. That's my suggestion for Do you if you want it, had can to sum up, up what is. I mean, that's it, isn't it?
1: It's promising.
4: I really think it's important to to say this isn't 1997. This isn't a moment. I don't think for a sort of bouncy, optimistic, energising uh, sort of leadership or mission or slogan that might give us a nostalgia burst, but it's not of this time. And, you yeah, know, yeah. that's
1: why I think... No, but it, crudely put, you would look down. Yeah, daff- you would look... Exactly. I mean, I
3: completely I completely agree with that. You know, the circumstances do not lend themselves to that. But, I mean, sort of, well, it's going to be still quite rubbish because we still won't have any money even when we're in power. Oh, you know, take me now. This is not, this is not like...
1: <laughs> last, po- last point, Mark, I wanted to ask you this. The country and the wider world are in a terrible mess. People who get overexcited about politics, like journalists, therefore tend to present these things as sort of watershed moments, big junctures, you know. Everybody who writes about politics wants another 1945 or 1997, um, whether rightly or wrongly. But there might be something in that in the sense that it does feel to me like an era is ending somehow, right, which is partly the reason why the Conservative Party is in such a mess. And yet you would expect political fireworks in response to the end of an era. Maybe the 2019 election was a bit like that. Johnson versus Corbyn is is tremendously spectacular and very vivid ideologically. In the middle of this sense of sort of systemic breakdown, we're going to have Keir Starmer versus Rishi Sunak. There's a sort of awkwardness there, isn't there? I mean,
4: I, mean, I definitely see the force of that because you want the solutions to be up to the scale of the challenge. And that, that, that is a real concern i think for everybody who, who thinks about public policy right now is like how do you actually grapple with the fundamental economic climate problems that we face so on the, on the one hand i think there's definite force in that on the other hand i do think that the era that has passed is also the era of overinflated political rubbish you know it's like what we've had for at least since the blair moment is everybody trying to puff things up you know sort of big bombastic promises which have never come to pass. You know, um, Gordon Brown was going to get rid of boom and bust. And then we had the financial crisis. You know, Brexit was going to set us free, take back control and establish global Britain. And here we are in the cost of living crisis. You know, Jeremy Corbyn was going to end capitalism or whatever it was and and, and then crash to defeat. Uh, My strong sense is that the era that has passed right now is of empty utopianism uh, and what we need to do is enter an era of you know ordinary hope and that that can still be inspiring that can still be up to the scale but it's a different kind of politics Look, let's not sing the old songs let's sing new ones which are appropriate for the moment
1: in which we're living to finish where we started gabby perhaps the reason that the time has arrived for a politics like that really does illustrate why politicians ought to focus on people Disillusioned people in the suburbs, that' Stephen John because there's a reason they're disillusioned, and they're disillusioned with politics as much as anything else, and politics has to respect that.
3: Politics has served them badly over the last 13 years. And actually, the choice on offer at the last election served them badly. It was two people who had very clearly distinct ideologies, but neither of whom, if we're honest, was capable of doing the basic job of governing. You know, Boris Johnson went on to demonstrate that very vividly. And I don't think Jeremy Corbyn could have coped with the pace of decision making or just, you know, the business of running a government. Everybody keeps saying to me, people are just exhausted. There's a feeling of just exhaustion. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 Jesus yeah. Christ, can we not just have some peace, some calm, yeah. some tranquility, yeah, yeah. some stability, some predictability. Stability in life. In that sense, it is going to be a security election. You know, you are surrounded by global threats. People just want to not have to be constantly terrified every time they turn on the news for a bit. And both parties have picked a leader who appeals to that. Yeah, so they're yeah. both contesting the same ground with very with people who, are, to be honest, very similar. I mean, if Starmer and Sunak met at a party, no one thinks they're going to hate each other. You know, they, if if they'd met in some o- under some other circumstances, they'd have quite a lot in common.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the winner will be the person who can most convincingly say, vote for me and you can exhale, totter off to Aldi, buy a bottle of cheap Prosecco.
3: In confidence.
1: And, and, and finally feel a bit better about everything, such is the terrain on which modern British politics is fought. Thank you so much for listening. More at the point. Thank you for joining us, Gabby and Mark.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week the UK, wherever you get your podcasts, and even better, leave us a review. You might also be interested in... The Guardian's Documentaries Newsletter, which is free and for a community of film lovers. It informs subscribers on the latest thought-provoking Guardian documentaries and gives a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the award-winning films. The newsletter is an opportunity to connect with the independent filmmakers through exclusive interviews and Q&As. Guardian Documentaries tells contemporary stories with unique artistic visions that reveal the changing world in which we live. To sign up, go to our podcast page. This episode of Politics Week the UK was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cucutier and the executive producer
0: Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com newsadfree news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.